This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I have to admit, this is somewhat of a guyish message. Uh, some of the girls in here are like, what? The dagger of Ehud. Like, if you get my boys in here, they're like, oh, is that the story of the fat guy? I'm like, yeah. And it, it, it's funny because if you ask a young boy what their favorite things are, you know, they love crawdads and caterpillars and things like that, planes, maybe some football. But then it's like, okay, choose a, a story from the Bible. Well, you know, David and Goliath's always a, a, a favorite. But then Ehud, I mean, he just always makes it into the list of a little boy's favorite stories. The story is somewhat gross, I have to admit. That's why it's somewhat of a guy message. At the same time, it's the Bible. Okay, now we don't need to be ashamed of the Bible. The Bible says things rather bluntly at times that we're, in our American sensibilities, are like, oh, you know what, we should cover that up a little. However, the Bible is the inspired word of God, and this is the way he delivered it to us. And it involves uncomfortable topics like bellies, a study in the danger of the belly and how to overcome them. So it's not to overcome the belly, it's to overcome the dangers that are representative in the belly region. You see, it's funny how God created us, but he created us the way he did on purpose, and yet something has happened to detour the original intent of this body to pervert it. The entire idea of a perversion is to take something good and twist it. And so what we have is a perversion of the human body. And that comes out very specifically in a belly region of the body. Okay, now that's awkward. It means in the Greek concept, the innermost part of you. There is an innermost part of you that has been hijacked. It was meant to be the holy of holies and to in, be inhabited with the king of the universe, and yet something has gone terribly wrong. When Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, there was a departure, and the presence of God left that inner place, and it became vacated. But something always sits down in that seat, and what we see is itself. I'm just going to say S-E-L-F, right? You've, you've heard of self, which is you. Uh, there is a version of self which is very inappropriate, and that is when you capitalize the S, and that's what's happened to us. Small s self looked over at that seat and said, mine. And as a result, when small s became a capital S and claimed a territory that did not belong to it rightfully, but actually belonged to the living God, something went terribly wrong. And there was a perversion of the human body. Body's still good, but it's being used for the wrong purposes. The Dagger of Ehud. Oh, boy, that's a great title. Now, I don't know if it's just the guys in here that like the title. Like, there's a whole patch of guys that's like, yeah, yeah, preach it. There's a little cluster of girls here that are a little concerned. Uh, so I'm going to start you out with a really good quote from the Bible. 
Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it happened. I'm just uh, repeating facts. You're like, you didn't have to choose that scripture to start it out. It's amazing, but what we have is we have something that is described awkwardly as the belly. The belly is not the most poetic term. Let's just call it that. If you're writing poetry, usually you don't end a sentence or one of your prose with belly. All you really have to work with is jelly. Uh, and so it's just awkward, right? It's not poetic. You don't name your kids belly. You know, there's just, uh, it's just not a, a word that you usually think of except for in awkward terms. And yet that's the word we have to work with. God seems to really like the word belly. And he uses it all throughout the scriptures. And so we're going to make every one of us uncomfortable today. And yet it's symbolic of something. It is the domain of your existence that has been taken over by the enemy. And you know that God has a solution for it? And it's called a dagger of Ehud. Otherwise known as, brace yourselves for this one, Jesus Christ. You see, there is a tool that has been given us that is meant to actually strike a death blow to this part of our being that is compromised, that continually leads us to a mediocre, less-than-stellar existence. You see, Christianity is a very other form of living. We don't live like the rest of the world. The rest of the world lives on their belly. Do you remember the curse and what happened to the serpent who once stood upright? Isn't that a strange thought of thinking of a serpent The curse was that he went down on his belly. What did he look like before that? That's sort of awkward. Well, the same thing is true with us. We could say, just imagine what man would have looked like if he hadn't sinned. He wouldn't be on his belly following his own cravings, but he would be standing upright, princely, and noble. Welcome to Christianity. It is causing a man to stand upright. The rousing, spontaneous cheer for Sugar Daddy. I have a nickname in my home. I give out nicknames to my kids all the time. They have a nickname for me. They're always trying to come up with nicknames for me. One that has stuck is Sugar Daddy. And I'm not exactly sure if I like this nickname. It comes from the fact that, you see, my house is almost completely sugar-free. Okay, there is really not a lot of tasty goodness in my house. Okay, and I... Uh, every now and then we'll go out and when I shop, like Leslie gives me a list and then I'll buy a few cereals. They're even in the organic section. But Leslie's like, this has sugar as the first ingredient. I'm like, it's organic. (laughs) The other day I came in to get some of my organic cereal, which is that's what I'm going to call it, organic cereal, and it was gone. I'm like, do you know what happened to my organic cereal? And she goes, I threw it away. (laughs) That stuff's expensive. She goes, it's pure sugar. Like, well, it's still made of healthy stuff. I can't believe that. And so I have a nickname in my house called Sugar Daddy. Now, I don't eat that much sugar. I mean, when you live in a house where there isn't any, I mean, you have to, like, sneak it in every now and then. (laughs) I mean, you don't get a lot, okay? So the way that I have gotten in most of my sugar over the years is through root beer and through chai tea. And those are sort of my inroads uh, because, you know, I'm in business meetings and you need to have a chai. That's very important. It's just to show respect to the person I'm talking to. I mean, if they're drinking something and I'm not, that's disrespectful. Of course, you could say you could get a water. Yeah, but that's disrespectful to the establishment. You know, if I'm in a coffee shop, you don't get water. 
you know, you need to order something. So that's all part of it. And then when I go out to eat with someone and they order a drink, root beer just makes sense because that sort of offsets, you know, the atmosphere. Then it's not just like, oh, I'll have a water. And then I make them feel bad, right? <laughs> See how, how I can think? And, uh, you know, Harper is always like, when can I start drinking root beer? And I said, when you become a daddy. <laughs> so, uh, and she's like, what? I'll never be that. I go, I never will. Uh, <laughs> So I came home from a trip. I want to say, I think it was my trip to uh, Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> and I came back from, from that trip, and I think that was the one. I'm not, not positive, but I had declined all chai and all root beer for the entire weekend. And you know, I came home, and something had come up amongst my kids. We were driving down the road, and I said, hey, guys, guess what? Daddy didn't drink a root beer or a chai tea the entire weekend. And I've never heard anything quite like this, but it was a spontaneous cheer, like, ah, yay, daddy. So now I come home from trips, that's one of the first things they ask me. Did you have a chai or a root beer? I think this last one I did. I don't know that they ever asked, but uh, Abby's what if question. I'm going to lay some foundation things here because there is a vulnerability in us. When we say belly, there's two different ways we can appropriate this. We have a physical belly and we have a spiritual one. The physical one is oftentimes it shows the same weaknesses and propensities of the spiritual one. When you have cravings and you can't say no to those cravings, whether it's chai tea or root beer, if they have more hold over you and you cannot relinquish them, that shows something even, it's indicative of your spiritual life. Temptation comes and you have to have it, as opposed to a belly that is actually ruled properly. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Belly. Abby's what-if questions. So Abby had a question the other day, which I thought was, she always has what-if questions. You know, I, I, I wish I could remember all of them, but some hilarious what-if questions. Her, her what-if question, question of the other day was, Daddy, what if a bomb was going to go off and the world was going to be destroyed in two seconds? What would you do? <laughs> well, I guess I would go home to meet Jesus. Uh, and then she goes, okay, how about in 10 minutes. What she was trying to get me to is what my action would be. What would I do if I knew I was going to blow up and everyone around me was going to blow up? So I said, well, uh, 10 minutes. Let's see. I would look around me and I would say, all right, my kids are here. I want them, I want them to know that there is nothing to fear. I would want to impart to them a clear understanding of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I'd want to ratify whatever is truth in that situation. That's probably what I would do. And if I was around someone that didn't know Jesus, which is what she was really uh, trying to bait me for. So what if someone doesn't know Jesus? Well, 10 minutes doesn't give me a lot of time, but obviously that would be of high priority. I would want them to understand that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. So then Kip over here, also known as Dub, asks, what if you had a week? Now that is a, a really interesting question that dovetails with everything we're talking about today. What if you had a week? You know, that's actually a hard question to answer because if you answer it the way you know the kids are wanting you to answer, you actually need to change your life because that's how we're supposed to be living. What if I had one week and everyone in the world was going to be destroyed? What would I do with that week? Well, why would I only do it if I had this what if? Why wouldn't I live that way always? Well, it's because Eric has a way that he wants to live his life, and I can spiritualize that all I want. But there is a need for God to get a hold of the center of my existence. 
and rule outward. Because there tends to be a little bit of Eric in there that says, well, you know, I'd rather live for 80 years and just do this sort of like the marathon run instead of the sprint. The first sin of humanity, this is just a fascinating thought, it did involve the belly. Isn't that an odd thing just to think about? It involved the mishandling of food. Some of the greatest issues we have in our day involve the mishandling of food. Isn't that just strange? Mishandling of food. They chose to make the eating of certain food more important than eternal life. Just not a good idea. When you put any emphasis on something higher than the life of Jesus Christ within you, what you see is an imbalance. You crave something, and even though you know that would actually injure your relationship with God, oh, it's just too good, and you have to reach out and grab it. You see, this is the very beginnings of the perversion of the body. So what would be the opposite? What would cause you to go in the other direction? Technically, there were two trees in the garden. Did you know that? Two trees, there was a whole bunch of trees. Two trees in the midst of the garden. One was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, do not eat of that tree. There's another one. Do you know what they could have eaten from it? It was called the tree of life. There's always two trees. You see, the tree of life was blocked off to us. There were cherubim with flaming swords that were set to guard the way to the tree of life. Who is the way? Who's the way to the tree of life? His name is Jesus Christ. And at that cross, he literally was symbolic of the tree of life. And anyone who comes into that tree and eats will live forever. An amazing thought. And so as a result, what you see in what I just described is you see the failure of the inner life, of the appetite, and you actually see the success. What happens when you come to Jesus? You give up all other loves. You give up all other cravings and you say, I give up everything to have you. The gormandizer, huge word, rather ugly word. It typically means a belly. That's how everyone would understand it in classic English language. A belly, one who is, in a sense, all belly. So if you were describing someone as a gormandizer, that's not necessarily a compliment, even though today some people are even twisting this into a compliment. One who is, in a sense, all belly, one known for their cravings for food and one controlled by their cravings for food, one whose God is their belly. One who devours food greedily and voraciously. One who snarfs their food. One who gorges on food. One whose food is all over their face and one whose passion for food is so great that it disturbs those around them. In biblical terms, a glutton. So most pastors today don't preach on gluttony. It's just one of those things that in America you just sort of need to be silent on because it's so rampant. I mean, in this room, usually we measure spiritually a glutton based on their size, when in actuality, that's an incorrect way to do it, because gluttony is more than just food. It is an appetite. It is an insatiable appetite, and some people know how to eat and be a glutton in such a way where other people don't know. Then there's others that have it all over their face, and everyone does know. For many of whom I have told you, or many, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. When their belly calls, they're obedient. When their belly requests of them their life, they give it. Their God is their belly. 
That's actually where their form of worship is most realized, is they give, they pay their tithe, they give their time, they give their attentions, they give their thoughts to that which their belly craves. Welcome to American Christianity. You see, unfortunately, since we've grown up around this, it's somewhat difficult to illuminate this fact in us. We can be very defensive, and everyone around, I mean, we could literally gather together in this room and lock arms and say, get this pastor off the stage. We want to be servants unto our belly and call it Christianity. You could do it. It wouldn't change things. So this semester, by the way, for those of you that are just arriving, I'm going to introduce to you a character. He has dimensions. He's six foot nine inches tall and six foot nine wide. We can call him the belly dude, okay? He's, in, in scripture, there's a character known as the old man. Paul talks about the old man, and technically all of us have an old man. Like, for instance, mine's known as Old Eric. And it's sort of strange for all the girls in here to have an old man. But uh, you're supposed to put off the old man and put on the new. The other term that we use, which comes under the banner of that, which is more the functional dimension of how the old man works, is what's called the flesh. And so there's two operations in this body of ours. One is known as the flesh, and the other is known as the spirit. And whichever one you give or pay heed to rules your body. So all of us in here, in our firstborn life, before we are born again by believing in Jesus Christ, are ruled by our firstborn life, or our old man, or our flesh. And as a result, we produce the fruit of the flesh, which is pretty ugly stuff. And no matter how hard you try, in and of yourself, you can't change that fact. It's just a fact. You are producing junk out of your life, and you're going to be judged for that junk, and you can't really change it. There's only one that can, and he's already done it. 2,000 years ago, he dealt with your problem. But you must repent of your problem, put it off, and come to him, and be saved from it. So this is the guy. Now, the way I describe it, he's rather big. Okay, you could just imagine six foot nine in, uh, feet, six foot nine, uh, six feet nine inches wide. Is that right? Yes. And so and six, this is a huge guy, just like a ball. And he jiggles when he walks. Blub, blub, blub. And he has one of those t-shirts. You ever you've seen those t-shirts? They have no arms to them and they have like a, a dip down here. And it goes about halfway down his belly and he has a big hairy belly. Blub, 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 blub. He's running around and he has like this grizzled chin. And he, he has donuts, uh, little uh, white donut holes. And he can't really get very close to his, his body, sort of like Tyrannosaurus Rex, his little arms sticking out. And he'll throw his, his donut ball, you know, uh, one of those donut holes, and, and he misses every now and then. So his, his whole chin is covered with white donut powder. He burps, scratches his belly. Now, girls, this is what is walking around inside of you. So if I were you, I would come to Jesus quick and get it out. <laughs> We're going to call him the belly dude. The all-permeating light. This is a pretty amazing statement in Revelation 22. There shall be no night there. This is speaking of the new Jerusalem. This is the new heavens and the new earth that we have to dwell in. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Imagine, you know, see, when you, we have light that comes from natural entities like the sun right and the moon reflects that sun and it creates shadow as a result because it's directional could you imagine what it would be like to have an all permeating light known as god who literally in this new jerusalem just 
shines light. That means that there is no shadow. There will be no shadow in heaven. So you could go and close the door to your closet, go to a dresser inside your closet, open a drawer, and guess what? Light. There is no hidden crevice in your life anymore. You see, most of us have specialized in hidden crevices. But who are we inviting into this body? He is known as the Holy Spirit. He is the light of the world. The same light that will light heaven now is meant to light your inner existence so that you can see what is going on. God desires you to actually be exposed, not in the bad way, but in the most positive sense. This is your problem, Eric. Oh, I didn't know I had that. You do. And as a result, when you see the problem, you can now address it. God, how can I deal with this? He says, come to the tree of life. I've dealt with it. You see, there is a solution for everything God wants to show you, but he has to be able to show you. Shining light into the shadowy soul, bringing the light of heaven to this earth. It's Christianity. You see, when we come unto Jesus Christ, we say, here you are. This belongs to you, Lord Jesus. You purchased it with your blood. Now, use it. And the Holy Spirit moves in. And just think about this. <clears throat> Holy. Holy Spirit. Don't just call it a spirit. He gives them a descriptor of holy. 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 That means other than us. So the spirit that is not like us is moving in. And guess who he's like? Well, he's God, so he's a lot like God. So the God spirit moves in. Who is not like us? What do you think he's going to poke at? Everything that's not like him so that he can make us like him. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The sin of self-entitlement. So if I could describe something, when I say gluttony, most of us, we glaze over. It's just a juicy, ugly-sounding word that most of us are like, hey, I'm not a glutton. However, gluttony in its most basic, most essential element is self-entitlement. I, I can have that if I want. It's mine. I can do this if I want. I'm entitled to it. Hey, I, I was set free by Jesus Christ. I can do that. I, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Have you ever heard that statement? I'm free, so therefore I can do anything I want. Who taught you doctrine? That's actually not how it works. You see, you're enslaved, so therefore you can't do what you want. That's called being enslaved to sin. Then you're set free, but not to do whatever you want because that's coming right back onto the slavery to sin. You don't want to do what you want. You want to do what he wants. You have no power to do what he wants unless he helps you. What you are saved is from doing what God is not wanting you to do. You're saved from constantly failing, from sinning. You're saved and set free to become his bondservant so that now you can do what he designed you to do. You can please him. You've been set free to please him. You've been set free to say yes to him, to do what God would do in a body. You've been set free. But not to just do whatever you want. Self-entitlement has nothing to do with Christianity. Absolutely nothing. So what comes out of that? Self-esteem. The big message of today, self-esteem. You know, that's not a biblical concept. It's not that God's wanting you to feel bad about yourself, that that's somehow better. However, God's great agenda for you is not self-esteem, that you esteem self, it's that you esteem him. And in so doing, you actually recognize the innate value that is you. 
Jesus Christ shed his blood to redeem you, doesn't that solve all mystery of how valuable you are? God himself has given up his life to procure you? You know, I think that sort of settles the score right there. We don't need to be dealing with self-esteem. I'm important. I'm important. I'm important. Just look at the cross. See his importance and look at the cross, and what you see is not just his importance, but you realize, wow, and he chose me. Self-worth, self-importance, all the terms that we throw around today. You see, that's not the focus of the gospel. All these basically are the stimulus package or the catalyst for what we could call gluttony. You see, the reason we have a tendency to function as gluttons or self-serving agents to take this body and say, what would feel good to this body? What does this body crave? What would this body like to be doing? Is because we have an incorrect understanding of what the cross has set us free to do. So gluttony, self-entitlement would be the best description of what gluttony is. Self-pampering, adoring attention paid to self's tastes, needs, and wants. Turning down the bed sheets for the self-king of the body. Have you ever been to a really expensive hotel and they'll go in before you come and put, you know, pull down the bed sheets and stick a little mint or a chocolate uh, on, on the pillow? We like that. Well, so that we do it for ourselves. And we turn down the bed sheets of self. It's like, what would cater to your highest tonight, oh dear Eric Ludi? You see, we want to care for us. We have very refined tastes. That's what we learn is how to cultivate our tastes so that we know what we want. How many of us are willing to refine our tastes so we know what God wants? You see the, the difference and the distinction between the two. Attentive service unto the ring of every demanding bell from the self-master of the estate. Gluttony is serving the belly dude. So I don't know how many of you want the six foot nine tall, six foot nine wide character dictating to you how this body is to work. To me, that's rather disgusting. I prefer to have Jesus Christ rule this body. However, I need to have light shine in because the moment I think I'm doing all fine... I need lights. I need some help to say, Eric, I, I think you still have an agenda here. Oh, God, please show me. I want God to rule. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh is sort of that term. It's sort of an ugly term, just like belly. But that's what it means to serve the belly dude. The cravings of self. That's the flesh. So then they that are in that state are living that way, cannot please God. Oh, no. Oh, say it isn't so, Eric the glutton. Now, some of you are familiar with these stories. I, uh, if you go through a semester at Ellerslie, you, have a, you get a whole pile of stories on Eric Ludi. Uh, Eric has every bit of challenge in overcoming obstacles, as any of you in here. And, you know, if there's anything special about me is that I refuse to serve the belly dude. Have I? Oh yeah, I have. But I refuse to stay in that way. And I refuse to let you stay in that condition. And as a result, I'm an irritant to the body of Christ. You know that it's harder for my life to say no to the belly dude? It would be easier if I just said, you know what, look, everyone else is serving him, so I'm going to too. Instead of saying, no, 
I will not, and I will not let my marriage go in that direction. I will not let my family go in that direction. I will not let my church go in that direction. We are going to serve the Holy Spirit no matter the cost. It's just a harder way to walk. And yet there's life there. Eric the glutton. So here's a few stories for us to walk through, some good ones. The garbage pail dad. This is just how I grew up. My dad had a legendary story. And anyone from his college that would come to the Ludi house, I would hear the stories. My dad's nickname in college was the garbage pail. He was on the football team. And he was built like me, but he played football. Isn't that bizarre? And he was a lineman. Could you imagine what I could do if, I, if this was the normal size for a lineman? Uh, but my dad was a lineman in college football, which is really hard for me to imagine. But he could just eat. And so back then they would get one serving for dinner. And so he'd eat it. And he'd look around. Are you going to eat that? You're going to eat that? And so everyone would bring their plate to him of things that they didn't, hadn't eaten and he'd eat it. So I grew up in the shadow of this legend. The guy who could never get full. My dad even had entire philosophies about how to get as much food into your system as possible. He said in 20 minutes, your body figures out that you're full. So what you can fit in before 20 minutes, you can fool it and get more in. That's how I go. My dad looked just like me. You see, we could get away with things as Ludies. We got this high metabolism thing going. So I grew up walking in the shadow of the legend. And guess which school I went to? Same one. It's a really strange story, but I ended up going to the same school, which at the time was called Whitworth College. And I got a soccer scholarship there. And so at this time, it was all you can eat. So this is a normal night. Seven plates of food. Five, after that, I went to Zip's hamburger stand where I got five Zip's cheeseburgers for $5. Pretty incredible deal. And I was still hungry. Uh-huh. What do you call this? Now, I was working out as a soccer player. I worked out in the morning and at night in addition to soccer. I mean, I was constantly active. But, excuse me? Okay, so now God gets a hold of my life. By the way, the scripture, their God was their belly, was one of the most convicting things I've ever gone through because it was when I was in college. And it was right after the croissant and the pancake incident. So I need to tell you what those are. This is very embarrassing, though. So I come to missionary school, and they have one serving for everyone. I went from seven plates of food and five Zips cheeseburgers. And by the way, before that, it was all you can eat at the Ludi dinner table. I mean, we, if we had leftovers, we had failed my mom. And so I grew up with massive amounts of consumption. I mean, I'm an athlete, okay? It's just how it works. I, I, I live in the shadow of the legend, Win Ludi. Okay, I have a job to do on this earth. I need to get the nickname Garbage Pail. Oh, God, if I could just get to that level. So I, I, get, to call, or I get to missionary school. God is getting a hold of my life. I'm like, God, whatever you want to do with me. Well, he wanted to work in the belly region of Eric, and I did... I had no concept that that had anything to do with Christianity at all. And so I, I had to learn a strategy because I would come in and I was always hungry. Always, because they'd give me one serving. I was like, one sandwich, one burrito, you know, it's like one bowl of cereal. It's like, you've got to be kidding. Don't you know who I am? My dad is the garbage pail. And so I would come in. There was a certain strategy that I began to adapt because it's survival. You know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And so I would come in, and I would look for the table. I'd come in just a few minutes after it would start, just sort of hover in the back, and I'd look for a table that had some open spots. 
And usually tables with girls, they would eat less, was my hope. That was the strategy, at least. It's like, okay, there's a good table, table three. And I would go over to table three and just hope that no one else showed up and there would be maybe an extra serving that I could say, oh, are you going to eat that? Uh, well, if you want it, Eric. Well, if you want it, I, I mean, I don't, we could split it. I mean, at least I could get a split of, of something. I mean, that was the goal. It was, just, it, it was survival. So this one time I came in and I was, you know, scoping out the terrain and I saw a table. Okay, this one looks good. And I sat down and they were serving croissants with one little slim, slim, one little thin slice of ham and one little thin slice of cheese. It's like, come on, guys. Uh, and so as the platter was going around, I took one, stuck it on my plate, took another and stuck it on my lap. I mean, we had, there was no one at the table. There was an open spot, and so this could work. I mean, it was risky. Don't get me wrong, but hey, I have a stomach to serve here, guys. If you, if you knew how hungry I was. Hey, come on, guys, don't judge me. I'm hungry. So I don't know how long passes, but it was way in the clear. I'm just about to reach for my second croissant, and I'm just, like, really excited about it, too, because I hadn't had that much food in a long time. Right this time, some guy's like, <laughs> shows up. He's like, oh, oh, okay. He's counting the tables. He finds our table, comes down. He goes, all right, what's for dinner? And they're like, uh, ham and cheese croissant. And I'm like, okay, well, hey, isn't there supposed to be another one here? And they look around. Yeah, there was, there was eight on that. <laughs> like, well, where is it? Everyone's like, I, I don't know. What happened to it? Everyone's looking around the table. So I had my croissant. Oh, <laughs> oh. Here it is. Yeah. The pancakes. And so I, one of my best strategies that I learned in missionary school was to go to early morning breakfast because most people wouldn't. And so I could get bonus food because you could sit at a table, there could be three people at it. So I'm like, oh, this is great. However, pancake morning got around and everyone wanted to get pancakes, which really bothered me because I had my system going where I could get some food in me and then everyone would show up for pancake morning. So I was, then the other strategy is you want to get as close to the edge of the table in the middle because that's where they would put the plate of pancakes. So they would serve it and just set it there. And then the concept is that you pass it, but if they run out, well, whoever's closest to the middle actually would get one at least in round one. All right, now, I, some of you are very disappointed in Eric Ludi and just hearing these stories. Like, oh, I just thought more of you, Eric. I mean, this is just disgusting. Uh, so I sat at a table, and it was packed, okay? And I'm at, like, table one or two. So I'm right in the beginning where the pancakes are going to get, and I'm just hungry. Okay, I get up early, and you know, I've, I've, my body's already going. My high metabolism is craving some food. Hey, come on, let's get, I'm going to have a blood sugar crash here, guys, if you don't get me something. So I'm sitting across from a character named Randy. Randy did not have the same social adeptness that I grew up with, okay? Like, there's just certain things, like, I would hide a croissant, he may just eat it, okay? And it's just like, hey, buddy, you have two there, and he'd just eat it. And it's like, hey, you're not allowed to do that, at least try and hide it, okay? There's just a better strategy here. And so Randy was sitting there across from me, and I'm in, like, position one on the other side. He's, but, so they sat, we waited forever, like a half hour for these pancakes, and they set him down. I think they were having trouble with the griddle or something. They set him down. Randy goes, hunk, sticks his fork through the whole thing and puts him on his plate. All these other guys, they're like, what? Oh, excuse me. What? And so, I mean, 
if you ever do this at Eller's, I mean, just telling you right now, this is bad news, okay? Just don't pull a Randy. And so I, I'm, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm choosing, you know, God's getting a hold of my life. It's like, I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to forgive him. God, I forgive Randy. I can't believe he just did it. God, I, I forgave him. It's over, okay? It's washed clean, and he can do this 70 times 7, I, technically, but I don't, I don't know that he should, though, because that would just be aiding and abetting criminal behavior. <laughs> so the second plate of food, of pancakes come down. Get this. You're not going to believe how socially inappropriate this is. Funk. And he sticks them all on his plate again. I mean, I, you, this was like cry, outright, I mean, shameful, criminal, deserving of prison, something. This is terrible stuff. And I am just biting my lip. I can't believe I'm a Christian and I love Randy. And I forgive Randy. Three times he did that. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say. Here's what God got a hold of me. Eric, you sure are excited about those pancakes. God, I get up early every morning. These guys just get up for pancakes. Randy is completely out of line. I at least should have gotten one out of this. You see, Jesus, when he was here, made this statement that he had food that others knew not of. I had never discovered food that others knew not of. I only knew of food. And unless I got that food, I was cranky, I was irritable, I was frustrated, and I had someone to blame in this situation. His name was Randy. <laughs> However, God began to make it very clear. I went back to my study time after that, and guess what scripture I read? Their God was their belly. I was trying to blame Randy for my frustration, but God was putting it back on me. Saying, Eric, I think we have an issue. I think you think a lot more about food than you should. I think your cravings are actually out of control. Would you be willing to give this up? Losing 25 pounds, attempting to solve my belly. So I began to enforce fasts on my life. And in fact, it was so bad. I was trying to be disciplined. I wanted to do this. I did not want my God to be my belly. And so without the dagger of Ehud, I'm putting quotes around that, without understanding the true miracle work of Jesus Christ, I took it upon myself to try and solve my belly problem. And so I would, this is what I would do. I would only eat if I felt like God asked me to. Well, that, that's actually not the way to go about it. But that's what I did. It's like, God, if you don't want me to eat, then, you know, just don't tell me, and I just won't eat. I lost 25 pounds, and if you look at me, there aren't 25 pounds to really lose. And this became a huge issue for me. I was thinking about my belly more than I'd ever thought about it. I remember I had a seven-day fast once, and it was about the second day that I started studying cookbooks. And the whole time, didn't pray, couldn't pray, couldn't read my Bible. I just kept studying cookbooks the whole while I'm fasting. Do you see anything wrong here? You see, Eric had a problem that could not be corrected by Eric. You have a problem. It might not look exactly like mine, but you have the same problem. And it cannot be corrected by you. This is, a more serious, this is more serious than we realize. We'll go back to the Old Testament here and give some perception and some perspective uh, on how God looks at this issue. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, 
Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him unto the elders of this city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put away evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. In other words, there's a just sentence for self-entitlement. For saying, I want it my way, I don't care what my authority says. That's exactly what's happening here. This young man's authority is saying, don't. And he says, I can if I want. It's called rebellion. And what does this rebellion look like? Spiritually speaking, it's called gluttony and drunkenness. Where you literally allow your body to follow and heed its cravings. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers. There's a great old-fashioned word. Drunkards. Among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. The roots of the damning disease of self-entitlement. Here it is. It's mine. Sounds a little like the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Gollum. Mine. And that's exactly what is resident in each and every one of us. Every child, when they pop out of their mother's womb, seems to have an instinctive quality, an understanding of things that are theirs. Mine! That's mine! Well, don't you want to share it with your brother? No! You see, there is a quality. Now, we get better and more mature at how to handle this, but we need to recognize and let the light shine on it. Your life is not your own. It was bought with a price. It is not yours. It's his. Gospel 101. It's my throne. It's my body. It's my time. It's my money. It's my life. It's my future. What you're going to notice is when you walk through a discipleship process, God is going to stick his finger on each of these. He's going to say, who who does that belong to again? You see, there's a part of you that says, it's mine. And the gospel must hit that. It must shine light directly on that and say, let's clarify. God says, it's mine. You see, it belongs to him. It's still your life. Don't, don't get me wrong. You still live, but it's not the way you used to live. It's now small s again. You become a bond slave. You're sitting on the throne, and you suddenly are off the throne with bent knee, and he sits on the throne, and he says, So, you ready to work today? Yes, whatever you desire, I will do. You see, you're still there, but you're in a submitted position. Small s, self. Christianity is not about self-entitlement. It's about self-relinquishment. So, one of the key words that uh, Paul is going to use, especially in his teaching in Romans, Romans 5 uh, through 8, is he's going to use this word peristomy which means to present and yield unto the rightful owner, the rightful possessor. So Paul is going to say, hey guys, you need to yield your members. You need to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Remember Romans 12? Exact same word, peristomy. You need to give to God what is his reasonable due. That's a command. So to present and yield unto the rightful owner, the rightful possessor, to place oneself at the disposal of another, to offer up, to relinquish, to make available, to give back to the one who rightfully owns it in the first place. 
So Romans 6, you're going to see a speckling of this here. Uh, Neither yield you your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Don't give yourself unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Know you not that whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, whoever you peristomy to, whoever you're giving yourself to and offering yourself to, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. As you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Paul gives a contrast, or if we could even call it a comparison, I guess, in this. He says, do you remember how you used to give way to sin? Remember how sin would come and you just go, okay, whatever you want. So it's the same way you're supposed to say, okay, God, whatever you want. When the Spirit of God asks, you say, okay, and you yield. The same way you used to give way to sin, to enticement, to temptation, now you give way to God. That's Christianity. You see, a Christian doesn't just keep doing the old stuff. They have a new pattern that is being built inside of them to do the good stuff. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, that you peristomy. Your, your body is a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul says, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Who, where'd you get this idea that you belong to yourself, that you have the right to do with your life whatever you see fit? Did you not hear that you were bought? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Uh, That apostrophe, yes, at the very end of the last word there is possessive, which means your body and your spirit actually belong. They are possessed. They are owned by God Almighty. Oh, upon the belly. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. So I want you to think about dust. Adam was made from dust. It's the stuff of this earth. Where you find your satisfaction, you find your diet in the things of this earth. You see, that's the serpent's curse. Whatsoever goeth upon the belly... Them you shall not eat, for they are an abomination, says God Almighty. In other words, that which is upon the belly is not what we are to partake of. Okay, it's an incorrect thing. It's a curse. The first man is known as earthy. So Paul is describing a first man and a second man. All throughout the Bible, it's going to talk about a first and a second. Remember we talked about the old man, the six foot nine wide, six foot nine tall Uh, belly dude. Mm -hmm. He's the one that rules the first life. You're supposed to put off the old man. You're supposed to be born anew. You're supposed to become a new creature in Christ Jesus by faith. The first man is of the earth. He's earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. As we have borne the image of those that dwell upon their belly, so we shall bear the image of the one who stands upright and princely. 
Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. We are as our father, the devil, eating dust. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. This is Jesus speaking. You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. I mean, Jesus is rather audacious here, saying that our father is the devil. Mm -hmm. Anyone who lives upon their belly, well, we come from a similar heritage, don't we? You see, we are finding our diet on the things of this earth as well. That's where we find our sustenance. How anyone can live on that, uh, it's sort of hard to explain, but it leads to death. So I guess you don't really live on it. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaves unto the earth. That's a pretty good description for us. Yeah, I want you, this is a hard thing to communicate, but there's a region of our body that God seems to have hallmarked, okay? We'll call it the middle. The middle of our body is the part that when you are on your belly and it is servient, subservient to the earthly passion, everything in your life goes south. You have your appetites, that are located there. You have your sexuality, your sensuality, which is located there in the middle of your existence. And so when that becomes bound to the earth, earthy, you bear the image of the earthy. You show forth what every other man or woman that is made of that same dust that is descended from Adam and the failure of Adam that has found themselves eating of that same dust, you will bear the same exact fruit. However, there is hope. Introducing the belly God. So this is speaking in Romans of those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So so it is possible to have the belly as your God. That's already been uh, seen in scripture. But also to serve the belly and not the Lord Jesus. It's a very clear thing. If you're not serving Jesus, then what are you serving? Your belly, your own appetites. So the enemies of the cross is who Paul is speaking of, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. It's interesting, first of all, who mind earthly things. What are their thoughts on? Their thoughts are on the things of the earth, of the dust region. Whose glory is their shame? What are they proud of? What are they boasting? What does everyone pat them on the back for? For their earthiness. How many people, even when it comes to food today, we even have the term foodie. And that's part of what it means to be hip and cool. If you're a foodie, well then, I mean, that's your glory. And it's your shame. It's the very enunciation that you are serving your belly instead of God. It does not mean that God doesn't care about food and he wants you to just fast eternally. God wants your belly to be ruled properly or your innermost man to be governed the way he intended. Meats for the belly and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them for the body is not for fornication or for its own lusts, its own cravings, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Upon the belly, four things that mark those enslaved to the dust of this earth. They eat dust, strangely satisfied with worldly rot. Isn't that just a fascinating thing? You know it's passing away. You know it's not eternal. You know God actually has condemned it, and he says, no, this kills you. 
And yet we find a strange satisfaction there. What what is that? I remember this one teacher came into uh, my missionary training school years and years ago and asked a question. She she was teaching on the the fear of God. And she said, uh, the fear of God, in essence, is hating what God hates and loving what God loves. She said, I'm going to just pause for a second. I want to ask you all a question. You don't need to answer out loud. Just I'm going to ask it and let you think about it. Think of that one thing, that sin that you try not to do, but if you're going to do one, that's what it's going to be. It's like your secret sin. It's like your point of weakness. All right, you got it in your head? Yeah, I did. I said, here's my question. If the fear of God is hating what God hates and loving what God loves, do you hate that secret sin? Hmm. You know, she caught me with that because I didn't hate it. I just tried not to do it because I knew God hated it. So as a, as a result, I tried to avoid it for God's sake to please him. But technically, I actually secretly loved it. I just tried not to engage in that. You see, I still had a belly for a God. I still had my own appetites that were controlling me. I just tried not to let it control me. Are you willing to let God so thoroughly change you that you actually hate what God hates and love what God loves. Minding earthly things. What is our mind on? I know that I have every propensity to take my mind off of the things of heaven. I deliberately have to choose. And those of you that hang around here a lot know some of my weaknesses. We could probably get all my weaknesses out onto the table and say, yeah, Eric, how you doing with that? Like when it's baseball season, it's the Colorado Rockies, and I always want them to start losing. Because if the Colorado Rockies are losing, it's easy for me. When they start winning, and they're first in their division, oh, don't do this to me, because I'm fascinated. And my mind wants to go on an earthly thing and meditate. It's not that the Colorado Rockies are sin. It's that my mind easily can be pulled away from heavenly things. Paul makes it very clear. You're supposed to think on these things, and not one of them is the Colorado Rockies. In other words, I have bait, and I know that I'm vulnerable. Okay, so Colorado Rockies are just one illustration. Politics and what's currently, what the media is currently doing to Trump, fascinating. Oh, another lie. <laughs> it just intrigues me, okay? And then there's all sorts of things like that. Like, I'm built a certain way. Now, some of the men in here can totally relate to what my attraction would be, but every single one of us has things that will call our earthly mind to be distracted. Like, I don't think about styles and, you know, what the women are wearing today. It doesn't affect me at all. However, some women in here, you have to know. You have to know what the current trends are. It doesn't affect me at all. You see, also the Colorado Rockies may not affect you. What affects us, there's things in this world that have a strange magnetic pull to us. I want you to allow the Spirit of God to shine light. It's not to say that it's wrong, It's the fact that your attentions, when God is calling you, you can't hear God, you can't see God because you're so allured by the things of this world. Making their appetite their God. And that's when you place appetite and the designs and the desires and the cravings of your own appetites ahead of God's agenda for your life. I don't know what that is, but that's a powerful statement right there. (laughs) Do you guys want to go back to that? Let's meditate. It's sort of like a say law. That's, that's great. 
The significance of the belly. So in the New Testament, the belly, or what we're describing as the belly, the Greek word is gaster. And it's technically what we're going to describe as the innermost place. The way Jesus even uses it when he uses this word gaster is the innermost spot in a man. Gaster, the belly, the womb. Isn't that fascinating? Just, just follow me here. The very thing that's used to describe this ugly attribute that you know, we're just disgusted by this whole entire message is also the place where new life comes forth. The stomach or the gormandizer. We're going to call it the place of self-entitlement and thus death and decay. You see, when we agree with Adam and Eve's betrayal, their rebellion, and we say, mine. All of us have said, mine. Every single one of us has. Not only did we inherit their disposition, but we also have participated in this rebellion by claiming this body as our own, by serving our own desires, our own longings above his. You know that God takes care of us? He takes care of our bodies. He does. However, it's not our job. And so when we claim it as our job, this is mine, God, leave it alone. Self-entitlement is us taking that interior place of our life and claiming it as our domain, the control center of the body. This is where I want my mind to think. This is what I want my eyes to look at. This is what I want this tongue to say. You see, it's funny, but even though you're responsible for everything because you're the one sitting in the seat, you can't stop it from doing the things you don't want. Okay, I don't want this mind to think that anymore. You can't stop it. You're sitting in that seat. You're responsible for it, but the belly dude is actually the one who's manipulating. He's like, puppeteer, you're the one that's going to be eternally condemned for it, and yet he's the one that's in control. Get that guy out. There's only one way. You have to repent. You have to acknowledge that this is wrong, God. And I can't do it myself, but I know you have done it at the cross. So this place of self-entitlement and thus death and decay, that's the innermost place. And as a result, what's coming out of our life is death and decay. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Isn't that a funny description? That means lazy gluttons. How would you like to be described that way? The place of self-relinquishment. So you have self-entitlement, and then you have self-relinquishment. This same part of our being either could be for us, or it could be for him. And if it becomes his, guess what? Christianity works. And thus the life of Jesus Christ. This is a profound statement. I'm going to come back to it in just a few minutes. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. What did she yield to God? She yielded her gaster, her womb. She said, come in, bring your life into me. That's profound because it's actually the picture of the new covenant relationship that we're going to have. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. How did that life come in? How did Jesus come into our life? By the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit comes in and literally conceives a new life, a new man, a new creature. 
And so what we see in the life of Mary, which gave rise to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is a picture or a template of what we understand as Christians, as the body of Christ. That we could be self-entitled and we could take this innermost part of our life and say, mine, and die. Or we could say, yours, be it done to me according to thy word, and live. So here's our word again, peristomy. Now, to present and yield unto the rightful owner, the rightful possessor. Now look what I put at the bottom. I made it bold. There's actually another definition for peristomy that seems to correlate beautifully well with what we're talking about, and that is to set at hand. It's a strange statement, but it means to be the bride, the handmaid, the bondservant, the priest. In other words, this idea is you relinquish to the one who rightfully deserves it, but it also means to stand in the place of dependence, in the, in the Bible, the right hand is a symbol of strength. And so a bride is basically at the groom's right hand. So she will depend and find her life and her strength in his strength. And so what we see is Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, which means the strength of the Father. All the strength and the inheritance and the power of the Father is given to the dependent one, Jesus. And so where do we find ourselves? as a bride dependent upon Jesus' right arm. And so what we have is a set at hand to be the bride, the handmaid. That actually is what the concept is, to be the maid at the hand. The bondservant, the priest. It's all the same concept. The handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. This is our proper response. Be it unto me according to thy word. The innermost place, the belly or the womb, either the place of self-appetite or the home of Jesus Christ. Your innermost will either be your greatest downfall or it will be the greatest strength. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus makes it very clear that out of the innermost part of those that believe will flow a river. And that will be a river of life. Out of Jesus, out of his innermost, remember when the spear went in his side? Remember what came out? A river. It was blood and water. Life is in the blood and water. So that's living water. A river of living water flowed out of his side and that's where we find life. Is his wounds out of his side came forth the Holy Spirit. That's actually what's likened to the Holy Spirit. It's given from Jesus to us. What's going to come out of you? If you believe, then your innermost is going to be filled with that life, that living water, and then out of you, whenever you suffer, whenever you go through difficulty, what's going to bleed out of you? What's going to come forth? The life of God. The significance of the thigh. What does that have to do with anything? Boy, I thought we were talking about belly here. Thigh and belly get strangely intertwined in the Bible. So sorry to do that to you guys. It's a symbol of self-strength. I know, a really strange symbol. I mean, I don't know how many of us would have picked the thigh. It's not just the thigh. It's, it's high up on the thigh, okay? It's really awkward. God does things like circumcision and then thighs. It's like, God, can we stay out of that region? Uh, but God seems to go straight in there and say, how you doing? Hey, is this being ruled by the devil or by me? Uh... Genesis 32, and when he saw that he prevailed not against him, this is Jacob and God wrestling. Remember it, Peniel? Significant moment in the Bible. 
And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh, unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. This is the formation of what we know as Israel. An entire nation flows out of this story. Those that grab a hold of God by faith and will not let go, they know that God has the answer, and they will not relent until they get it. The symbol of overcoming is that you relinquish that strength in your thigh. This is what it is. And that thigh is, okay, it's just a little awkward. It's the hollow of the thigh. It's also called the hucklebone. Boy, that would, that's a, I don't know if that helps any of us. The, the groin. The hollow space where the thigh bone moves. The sexual region of a man. His potency, his strength. Well, that's, that's a little awkward. And yet, not to be overlooked. In other words, what is God saying? You want to follow me. You want what I have. I need what you have. I'm going to take your strength away. You see, Jacob loses his natural strength. This is where the strength of a man is, is in this thigh. It's in this aspect of his middle. This is what defines a man. Instead, he finds weakness there, and as a result, is ready to lead a nation. The belly and the thigh, the symbol of sexual appetite, rebellion, and gluttony. Right there, swallowed up in those two terms. The symbol of sexual appetite, rebellion, and gluttony. The brass kingdom. So when we see Daniel's prophecy, we see, Thou, O king, saw, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thigh of brass. You'll see belly and thigh will be tied together many, many times in Scripture. His legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou, thou saw till that a stone was cut out without hands which smote the image upon his feet and were, that were of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. His name is Jesus Christ. The rotting thigh and bloating belly. So if this is, I, oh, maybe I shouldn't even say it's awkward because then you, think of it as awkward. Maybe it's just normal. This is normal. Then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people, when the Lord does make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. And this water that causes the curse shall go into thy bowels, and to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. And when he hath made her to drink the water, then it shall come to pass that if she be defiled, and have done trespass against her husband, that the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell and her thigh shall rot, and the woman shall be a curse among her people. So how are we going to tell if this woman has actually been unfaithful to her husband? She needs to drink this little potion, and if she drinks it with agreement, then if she is pure, nothing will happen. But if she is wayward... Well, then her belly will rot and her thigh... What was the statement? Her belly shall swell and her thigh shall rot. Ah! Guess what? We have a problem today amongst the bride of Christ. And that is we have been unfaithful to our bridegroom. And as a result, 
We are being controlled by our belly. Our thigh is our own strength and we lack the limp. We want to be cool. There's nothing quite cool about the limp. We have the swagger. We have the strut. We want to fit in. Instead of giving up our strength and saying, God, use this as a vessel even if I look like a fool to the world around me. The curse and the correction. The curse. Life lived upon the belly in the service of the belly God. A slave to sexual appetite. A hip swagger on the strong thigh. The correction. An emptied belly ready to be filled. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit. A servant to righteousness. A thigh touched with a limp of utter dependency. You see, there's a part of your inner life. It's your spiritual stomach. Your spiritual inward man, your innermost part that needs to be the habitation of God Almighty. You need to empty. You need to give up the controls. You need to let go of your mind and let him have his. You need to be ready to be filled with his life, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to become a servant, a bond slave to righteousness, and you need to allow your strength to be given up. You know, you're going to have a limp. The world will look at you funny. It just goes with the territory. I can't help it. Anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You will be the idiotes, is the Greek word, an idiot to this world. Look at our nation. If you truly stand up for that which is godly, that which is biblical, that which is true, you are considered the greatest fool in our modern day. Yeah, I, I, I believe in a six-day creation model. <laughs> You're the idiot. You actually believe that stuff? I do. I, I, I do. You, you're saying that? You're going to let everyone else hear that too? I will. I know I look like an idiot to them. But in heaven, it comes across as wisdom. God's like, hey, that guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. If I said six days, I meant six days. Come on. All right, Ehud, the man of consecrated thigh. This is an amazing picture because what you've learned up to this point sets you up to understand once again the picture of Jesus' redemption at the cross. You see, there's a belly dude. I mean, talk about a picture of the belly dude. It's in this story. And then you have a judge in Israel. Now, in this picture, you could look at Ehud as a Jesus picture. I would like you to look at something else as the Jesus picture, and I would like you for a little time here to be Ehud. In other words, you have to make a choice. What are you doing with your own thigh, with your own belly? When you sacrifice and when you give them up, you get a strength of heaven, a weapon, to be able to deal a death blow to the belly dude. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. So the Lord strengthened... Uh, <laughs> if you want to say it, the belly dude in your life. Have you ever noticed that when sin increases, it has a tendency to do one of two things, either harden you or soften you to the realities of the kingdom of heaven? When you go through a season, I mean, sin is pleasurable for a season, but that season comes to an end. And it makes you vulnerable, if you will, in a most positive sense, to the overtaking of the kingdom of heaven in your life. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. 
So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Some of you might be 18 years old and fully relate to this story. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged and cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Of course, that is the point where all of us guys, for whatever reason, really like this story. Like, that fascinates us. And if Abby was here, she'd say, how fat, daddy? <laughs> I don't know, but if the Bible's going to say he was fat, we're assuming really fat. <laughs> so Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Uh, does, I don't know how you feel, but to come up to the belly dude and say that just sounds really fun. Hey, uh, I have a message from God for you. You're defeated. You see, you need to grab that dagger, that weapon of righteousness that has been wielded for us 2,000 years ago and given to us in the shed blood, given to us and imparted to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we could function in this body the way God intended and to bring judgment on the king of Moab that which is ruling this body, which shouldn't. So he arose from his seat. Then he had reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly <clears throat> and his entrails came out. Again, there's very reason, various reasons why this is a fun guy story and maybe the girls aren't too excited. However... It is not just a guy application. This is a body of Christ application. You need something outside of you to be able to solve your self-entitlement issues. We are a nation of gluttons. We get what we want when we want it. And if we don't get it, we call customer service. And we complain because how dare any business in this country ever dream of operating in such a way that would not please us? Oh, are we willing to relinquish our Americanism and become fully Christian? We die to ourselves. This is not about us, not about our wants, not about our desires, not about our cravings, not about getting things when we want them. It's about him, what he wants, what he desires in our life, his timetable. And for whatever reason, God really loves 11.59 and 59 seconds. God is not in a rush. He's teaching us patience. God wants to build Christians, not belly dudes. God is interested in saving us. He has given us the weaponry if we will take it. But we have to choose to reach down and grab it. The belly made right, as it ought to be. Now, if it's made right, we probably are not going to call it a belly. I mean, Jesus technically, gaster, is what it was called. The innermost. I prefer the term innermost. The term belly is just awkward. But in the innermost part of Eric Ludi, there is a sanctuary. There is a holy of holies. It is a place that has, at times, been darkened. And it was absent of its creator. But Eric Ludi has submitted his life to Jesus Christ and said, be it done unto me according to Jesus Christ, the word. 
the word in text, the word in person, the word in action when he went to the cross. Do it in me as you promise in the word. Do it in me. You say you'll fill this body. You say you'll make it your temple. You say that you'll empower me. You say that faithful as he was called me, who also will do it. Well, here you go, God. Do it unto me according to thy word. In here, in this life. And as a result, what used to be a glutton and still has the propensity to be a sugar daddy is a man who is awakened and alerted to the fact that this body counts. It matters. I have one life to live, and I want to live it well. And if that means giving up chai and root beer, so be it. I'm not saying it does. My kids are like, yay, spontaneous applause. However, it might. Because for me, if those prove to be such weaknesses and stumbles that they distract me, if they distract my kids, may every barrier, everything that stands in the way be removed. I want this life to please Jesus. The belly made right. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul. But the belly of the wicked shall want. You'll never have enough. If you eat dust your whole life, you'll never have enough. But the righteous, they eat to the satisfying of their soul. The blueness of a wound cleanses away evil. So do stripes the inward parts of the belly. So how are we going to heal this problem that we have? How are we going to fix it? Well, it says right here that it's the blueness of a wound and stripes. I know someone who by his stripes, our innermost man has been healed. You see, everything that you need was done for you. Everything to remove the belly dude was accomplished. Everything to set you free from a life of self-entitlement has been accomplished. You must choose to accept that. To put your full confidence in it and say, Jesus, what you did is everything I need. You can't do it yourself, but I want to introduce you to someone who can do it for you, who has done it for you and will continue to do it for you to the fullness of salvation in your life. He will save you to the uttermost. Isn't that an amazing thought? We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.